Welcome to another edition of Unwritten Rules, the Iowa Cubs podcast. I'm Randy Wayhofer, Assistant General Manager, uh, hosting again this week. Make sure you uh, subscribe, like, and share uh, to the podcast. We've had a lot of fun with this so far. We've got a new episode every Tuesday. And always be sure to check out iowacubs.com for all the latest information about what's happening with the season, the team, and uh, everything you wanted to know about the podcast as well. We are very pleased to be joined by Jeff Lance uh, today. Jeff was the former Director of Media Relations with the Iowa Cubs. He's an Iowa native, has a lot of history pre-employment with the Iowa Cubs and Principal Park that we'll get into. Uh, left to get the chance to work in the big leagues for a little bit, transitioned into the office for minor league baseball in Tampa, and now in the midst of another transition uh, as the game is transitioning uh, to a, a more direct relationship with Major League Baseball. So that's a, a lot of words for the introduction, Jeff, but uh, thanks for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure to join a movie star like yourself, Randy. <laughs> Check out IMDb, uh, and you can find out the backstory there if you don't already know. Uh, let's let's start a little bit current, and then we'll go down memory lane uh, for you and, and some of the transitions that has gone on uh, with Major League Baseball kind of resetting the landscape of minor league baseball and taking a lot of the operations of what used to be the home office in St. Pete and the league offices out of play and running it through the commissioner's office in New York. And you've been directly involved in that transition, uh, being the director of communications or what would the exact title you had uh, in St. Pete and and, uh, transitioning to uh, playing a role in this new landscape. So how has that gone and uh, what what are your hopes and, and expectations for how you will continue? Yeah, it's been good so far. Basically, they've kept about 15 of us on to uh, help with the transition of basically Major League Baseball running the minor leagues. And, uh, you know, they they selected a handful of people that they think probably had some relationships with teams that they could benefit from having around. Um, some people with some knowledge of business side of baseball or for the minor leagues anyways. Uh, you know, most of those guys have been at the Major League level their entire career and they may not know you know, the logistics of running a minor league team and what's involved. So uh, there's a handful of us that have worked on the team side that I think, uh, you know, offer something that's of benefit to them and and can, uh, based on our relationships we have with all the teams now, you know, whether it's just getting a, a quick answer to a survey question or whatever, uh, they know that we can turn around stuff pretty quickly for them. I know uh, special events were a big part of what you were doing in minor league baseball and, and may uh, have a role in. Uh, what are some of the thoughts and expectations that as, as a native Iowan for the Field of Dreams game and what people can expect from it and about it and um, uh, the, the long-term prospects of that? I know you've been kind of close to that situation. Yeah, I th- the plan is to have the game, uh, the Yankees and White Sox again. Uh, you know, all systems are a go, it sounds like, and I think it'd be a pretty neat thing uh, for the state. I think it'd be really cool if uh, once that game were played, that maybe a couple of minor league teams from Iowa uh, might be able to play on that field as well. I think that'd be a pretty cool thing. And hopefully the uh, vaccine situation is cleared up enough by August so that they can have a full house. I think they're going to have about uh, 10,000 seats in that stadium. And, uh, you know, I got to believe if, you know, <laughs> there's 10,000 seats there's not going to be very many of them available for uh, the general population to attend that game. So uh, hopefully, you know, people will be able to go to see a minor league game there if they want to, if we can pull a few games off over there and, and uh, let people experience a game at that ballpark. It's going to be a pretty neat setting, I think. 
Well, we're rooting hard for them to be able to sell all 10,000 seats because that means we're on our way to uh, doing the same uh, sometime, yeah. sometime this summer, too. Uh, we're speaking with Jeff Lance today, and let's kind of go back um, to your time with the Iowa Cubs. Was it 11 seasons, you were saying? Yeah, yeah. Started there in 1997. Uh, I guess it all technically started when I was at Iowa State uh, at a sports management class, and Nick Willie was the group sales director for the Iowa Cubs, and he came up to speak to our sports management class. And And I knew that in 1997, they were going to have the AAA All-Star game. So and I also knew that at the end of, uh, you know, the 96 fall semester, I was going to be graduating and needed a job. So <laughs> I stayed afterwards and talked to Nick and said, hey, you know, I, I've grown up going to minor league games over in Cedar Rapids. I'm an Iowa City native. And, you know, I grew up going to games in Cedar Rapids, Quad Cities, Clinton, Waterloo, Burlington, all those places. And and, uh, you know, I had my, with my major, you know, sports, uh, public relations and communications, but my minor area of study was sports management. So uh, I just went up to him afterwards and said, hey, man, I, you know, I'd love to talk to you about a possible internship starting in January. And, and I'd love to help out with that all-star game. I know it's going to be a, a, a lot of extra work for everybody. And at the time, the Iowa Cubs only had, I think, eight or nine full-time staff people. Um, so it was, uh, they were pretty stretched pretty thin as it was just running a team and, and then to throw an event like that with all the logistics and planning that go into that, uh, I said, Hey, I, I'd love to be a part of it. And he said, uh, why don't you come down and, and we'll talk someday. And so we went down, I went down there and went to a game and, um, to right at the end of the 96 season and talked to him a little bit and, uh, actually hadn't heard back from him. I was a candidate with the Iowa Cubs, the Kansas City Royals, and Quad City River Bandits at the time. And uh, River Bandits wanted me to start right at the start of January. So I, you know, well, okay, I haven't heard from the other one, so I'll, I'll go start that job. And it was great because my first week there, uh, on the Friday when I was getting ready to leave, my boss, Dave Lorenz, who now is one of the big wigs with the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, said, hey, bring an extra coat on Monday and make sure you bring, you know, some winter boots and a couple pairs of pants or something I'm like, why, what are we doing? He goes, well, you're going to paint the outfield wall <laughs> so we can put the new signs up. It's time to paint the new signs. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like five degrees out. We're going to go painting. So anyways, I get home that night and I got a, a voicemail. It's, you know, it's Nick Willie saying, Hey, I'd like to you know, have you come over and, and talk on Monday and, and, you know, see if we can work something out here. So I called him and said, Hey, I got to go to Des Moines on Monday. I'll, you know, I need a day off after one week working there. And, uh, you know, they said, okay, go ahead. So I went over there and Nick said, Hey, we'd love to have you start, you know, January 25th or whatever the date was. And I said, I'll be here, man. Cause I'm not paying that outfield wall in quad cities. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so I came over and, and worked in group sales. I, you know, didn't really, know much about group ticket sales or anything like that but I knew I wanted to work in baseball and that was you know working in triple A to start essentially was a pretty good option for me so I you know I took that and uh you know it was uh it was a great experience I I think I was getting 500 bucks a month and it was like I was loaded so <laughs> you know it was uh it was fun well when I worked in Burlington all those years when it was time to paint the outfield wall uh, we went out and took down the 4x8 sheets of plywood, loaded them up in pickup trucks, and one of the board members had a trucking company, so we set them up in the warehouse and we painted them 
uh, and then we would put them back up. So we got to paint in the warmth, but we had to carry four by eight sheets of plywood through the snow back and forth from the field, depending on when we were ready to get going. So there was really no perfect way to get that done, but... Uh, I think that way is better, though. <laughs> uh, we're visiting with Jeff Lance on Unwritten Rules, the Iowa Cubs podcast to, today. And uh, when I think about your era with the Iowa Cubs, we overlapped a little bit. Uh, and, and, and the Iowa Cubs, long before I was ever part of it, were really good at being the big brother of all the AAA or all the minor league teams in Iowa, including the four single A teams on the eastern part of the state. So uh, we were in contact about content for the game program that highlighted everything that was going on in the state. And I, got, I knew you by email uh, a little bit, and, and we overlapped a very little bit uh, when you started. I started, and about four weeks later, you left for Baltimore. Uh, <laughs> but we'll get to that. But when I think of that era and the stories I hear from when I first started of, of your decade with the team, the stories that were repeated most often were the rehab assignments and the circus that followed, whether it was Kerry Wood, Mark Pryor, Derek Lee were the, the three big ones and, and, and just all the hoopla uh, that, that surrounded it. And you were front and center uh, in your role uh, dealing with, with lots of that. So let's start with Kerry Wood. Uh, it almost became, unfortunately, an annual event when Kerry would come down for the start or two with the Iowa Cubs. But what do you remember about the early ones and then how you got used to, to setting that up uh, for the short notice and all the craziness that goes along with having a big-time major leaguer come down on rehab? Yeah, you know, uh, I guess my experience with Kerry started in 1997, my first year when I was an intern there. I, uh, I got an apartment at the start of the season. Um, and needed some roommates. So when we had the uh, welcome to town party with the players, I kind of walked around and said, Hey, I'm Jeff. I need a roommate. You interested, you know, and, and uh, D Dowler and Harold Williams were, D was a center fielder and, and Harold was a first baseman. And, and they were like, yeah, we need a place to stay. So they were my roommates. Well, I think it was late July or middle of July, or whatever D Dowler gets sent down to double A because they've got to make room for Kerry Wood to come to triple A. So, uh, Kerry walks in the door and I walk up and introduce myself and he was the big phenom first round pick all that you know everybody knew who he was and I said hi I'm Jeff and you're my new roommate so I go there's $250 due here in about two weeks and I need you to pay it so he moved in and uh, we ended up having pretty good time there it was uh, it was a fun experience and he was only 20 at the time and uh, but he was great he was you know friendly as can be nice kid um, you know, like to hang out and, you know, watch TV and spit tobacco into a cup. So you know, it's, uh, like any good, I had, to, had to tell him to throw those away every now and then, but you know, <laughs> outside of that, he was a great roommate. Um, and so, you know, that certainly helped when it came to him coming back through town, uh, you know, having a relationship with him and, and, and a good, you know, foundation to work on to, for a working relationship. And, um, you know, every time he was coming to town, he did everything we needed. He was, he was great, you know, and, and like you said, unfortunately, he had to come back a few times, um, you know, brought his wife, Sarah, I think for the last one, but to work with, always enjoyed seeing the fans and, you know, having playful banter with a lot of them down by the bullpen and stuff. So it was, you know, he's, he was, he was always a, uh, a crowd favorite there. 
How about prior? Carrie uh, uh, came through here and you had that personal relationship. Um, how much was prior in Iowa Cub before he got, uh, I don't think either of them spent a whole lot of time here before they went to the big leagues, but that's certainly a, a different element for when guys come back as if they were a AAA player here uh, before they were a, a rehab star. Yeah, uh, Mark came in on May 6th, I believe was the date in 2002, because uh, he flew in and said, hey, who can I play catch with? You know, I got to throw up, so it's a pitch tomorrow. I got to have my throw day. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, the team's on the road, so I'll do it. I'll play catch with you. I, you know, I <laughs> caught bullpens in college, so I'm like, I don't want you to throw 95 miles an hour at me, but as long as we're just playing catch, I can handle it. And so we played catch for 30 minutes out in the outfield that day, and he came back the next day. And, uh, I mean, anybody that was there will tell you it was probably the greatest single performance they've ever seen in the minor leagues. I think he struck out. I want to say 11 in five innings and he hit two home runs and a double. Uh, I mean, he got two curtain calls out of the dugout in the triple A game. I mean, who does that? And, and there, he struck out the side, I think twice and, and got standing ovations after those two innings. I mean, it was just, I, I, Bruce Kim was our manager and he, I remember he told Randy Peterson after the game, he goes, I'm not saying this guy's Babe Ruth, but what we watched tonight is probably what it was like watching Babe Ruth play. And he's totally right. I mean, that was the greatest comment you could possibly have about that particular game because that's exactly what Babe Ruth did back when he played. Um, and, and Mark was, I mean, man, the line of people waiting to get autographs outside the clubhouse after games. Um, I mean, we ended up, he had so many interview requests for him that I had to set one hour, uh, two days of a week, before batting practice, he would come in and sit up on my desk at the second floor there at the offices. And we would just have a list of 10 people that I'd say, you have five minutes, here's Mark and put him on the phone. He would bang out the interview and, you know, it just, it was insane. And, you know, people were just clamoring for his autograph. And it, it was like, uh, I mean, it was like you were having a rock star at the ballpark every day. It was probably like what Michael Jordan was like in Birmingham, you know, and, and yeah. uh, it, was, it was just crazy. We ended up, you know, so many people were waiting for his autograph and were disappointed they didn't get it. That we, we talked to Mark. We said, hey, why don't you sign a bunch of baseballs and we'll put them on sale in the store and then maybe some of these people will go away. And <laughs> we, I, think, I, I think I gave Rick Giudicessi 24 Mark Pryor autograph balls to put on sale in the store. And I think he put them in there at 75 bucks or something like that. And they were all gone before his first start, before the first pitch of his first game. I mean, it was just, it was nuts. It was, it was just crazy. Um, we had, you know, people, all the Chicago media came in. Um, you know, they were, all the TV local stations in Des Moines were shooting video to ESPN and places like that. It was just, I mean, it wasn't your normal minor league baseball deal, you know, and, and, I don't know. There haven't maybe Bryce Harper when he signed and became a pro, it was probably a circus like that. But man, Mark Pryor was it was just crazy how big of a deal he was in the minor leagues. And I think you know when Bryant has come back twice now, uh, when Schwarber got sent down, it wasn't even rehab when he just spent a week, but it was the year after the World Series. 
Um, it was certainly um, exciting. Uh, it's probably a little bit different with a position player um, from their access and their schedule and, and things with those guys. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it was great, but it wasn't like people hanging from the rafters crazy like some of the pictures and, and stories I heard. Uh, and I guess, you know, having Ryan Sandberg around every day in 2010 was different, but he was there for all 70 games. So we were to spread that out yeah. a, a little bit and, yeah. and maybe blend um, some of that in. But uh, And I was incredibly jealous after I had left Baltimore before Rhino came in to manage. And, man, he was my favorite Cub growing up. And I, I was I was bent out of shape when I heard he was coming to Iowa to manage. Like, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. He, he was, Andrea, uh, had to, Andrea had to hold down the fort on that one. Uh, you know, he made it easy. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing I, I think and, and want to have you speak to this a little bit, too, is that, you know, in my time in Burlington, we didn't have any rehabbers. They didn't send anybody to Burlington to rehab except once. We got Mike Sweeney because he was the only guy that would uh, accept the opportunity to go to the Midwest League. And him and his dad drove over from Kansas City and it was just a couple of days to relax for him and, and get a couple of swings in. And the thing about being around him for a couple of days was he was the first person that I met, and Sandberg was a little bit like this too, that seemed to understand what people wanted from him and humbly able to give it to them without really being a prima donna about it, uh, which is so rare. You know, you, you think somebody that has gets all that attention, it starts to kind of fill them up a little bit, and then they want everything to be handled in a certain way. Uh, Rhino and, and, and Sweeney were guys that understood that you wanted 30 minutes of their time. For that 30 minutes, you got all of their attention, and then they moved on, and you felt great about it. Were, were Wooden prior like that, or who are some of the guys that you've been around who have been really good at that? Because that's just next level for me, having been around some people. Yeah, no, you know, when you hear somebody refer to a guy as a real pro, that's what they're talking about. I mean, for a guy like Mike Sweeney, who's a multiple-time all, multiple all-star, and Sam Briggs, obviously, a Hall of Famer, they know what that experience is going to mean to Randy Wayhofer or whomever they're speaking with. Um, and it's just going to help if you're, if you're a, a writer or a journalist and they give you that 30 minutes, it's just going to make a better story. And, you know, people want to pull for guys like Mike Sweeney and Ryan Sandberg and, and those kind of guys. Uh, so it's, it's always important like that. Uh, Mark and, and Carrie were both, you know, they had a lot of attention before they even got to Des Moines. And, but they were both just pros all the time. And that just made everything so easy for us. Uh, I remember we would pull their cars in on the warning tracks so they wouldn't have to fight through the mass of people out back. Uh, but, you know, it, it was just the professionalism of those guys is what stands out. And, and I'll never forget when Mark left, I think he was here for maybe, or Iowa for maybe five or six starts is all. Uh, when he left, to go to Chicago, he called and said, Hey, I want to put an ad in the paper thanking the fans. I was like, What? <laughs> like, I'd never heard of that before. People didn't really do that. Uh, and I said, Okay. He goes, Just, you know, just say, I want to thank the fans of Des Moines for coming out and the support over the last few weeks. And, and, you know, he goes, I know you got some pictures. So maybe put a few of those in there. Okay. Let me get them to mock something up. So we call the register, they mock it up and, and $4,500 later, there's uh, I think it was a half page ad in the Sunday Des Moines register, thanking the fans in Des Moines for all the support when he was in Des Moines. And 
people couldn't believe it. And, and I remember old uh, Marty Terrell calling us liars <laughs> on the radio. Mark Pryor didn't pay for that ad. Yeah, I would cause put that together, blah, blah, blah. I, I sent Marty a photocopy of the check that Mark Pryor wrote to the Iowa Cubs with the memo line saying Des Moines Register ad. And I'm like, Marty, he's real. Like, he is that good of a person, you know? And and that that story's always kind of stuck with me when talking about Mark Pryor. And, I, and I've run into him several times over the years, um, you know, in his time as a coordinator with the Padres, and now obviously pitching coach for the Dodgers, but uh, just really great kid. Um, you know, his dad, I think, had a big influence on him and he'd been working with Tom house and all these guys since he was in high school or whatever. So he, he knew how to act like a pro and he showed it. I hope you blacked out the routing number and the account number on that check before you sent it to Marty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Only know where that would be right now. <laughs> this would have a much different ending. Uh, if you hadn't <laughs> paid that close of, of, of attention to detail, uh, Jeff Lance is our guest on unwritten rules and Iowa Cubs podcast uh, this week. Uh, talking about his uh, 11 years as the uh, media relations communications director here with the Iowa Cubs and different experiences. And it's one thing to deal with the stars, but working in AAA, one of the benefits you get is some of the guys are still real people. Uh, they just happen to be really good at, at baseball. Uh, they're not all about uh, chasing everything else or, or even getting the attention. Maybe some of them deserve a little bit more. Who are some of the other guys that uh, stand out to you not for what they meant as a prospect or as a player, but uh, just the the people that we get to be around that are uh, that make an impression. Yeah, uh, one guy that really comes to mind right away was a Des Moines guy himself, Mike Mahoney. Uh, he was a, a really really solid catcher for us. Uh, you know, he probably would have liked to hit a little more, but you got to have those kind of guys. A, a good defensive catcher is is an asset, and and Mike was a terrific catcher local kids. So we got to play in front of his parents all the time, which was great for him. His dad was a big coach. And I, I know that time meant a lot to them. Uh, you know, he, he really stands out as a guy that he would do anything we needed. If we needed somebody to go sign autographs for the Boy Scouts after the game or uh, go do the, the baseball camp for hearing impaired kids, you didn't really have to ask Mike. He just told him what time to be there. He was always there. Uh, he was terrific. Uh, Nate Toit, the guy that ended up working for the Iowa Cubs, he was always, you know, he knew that there were a lot of people in the area that knew he went to Iowa State and, and you know, had some kind of tie to him, whether it be friends or family. And, you know, he was always really good with the fans. Um, uh, let's see, who else? You know, guys like Robin Jennings, all the way back in 97, 98, Robin Jennings, uh, Brant Brown, Mike Hubbard. Those are some guys that were just, unfortunately, they were, with the Cubs at a time where they didn't get a, a real good look in the big leagues. They didn't get a lot of time, but man, they were great players. And they were really good with the fans. They would always stay after and sign autographs and they were a lot of fun to watch too. But uh, those guys really stand out to me as guys that really understood what we were trying to do and that, you know, we were providing entertainment and, you know, whether, if they didn't make it to the big leagues, it's not the end of the world. They still had a great time playing professional baseball and, and thankfully, all those guys did make it. You know, Nate got up for a while with the Marlins, and, and Mike got up with, with the uh, Cubs and Cardinals for a while. So uh, it was great to see those guys get that opportunity because of how great and how professional they were when they were with us. 
One of the things that you and I have in common was getting into this because we wanted to be in the big leagues in a role out of uniform. Uh, and, and there's a lot of people like us that get into the game um, because they loved playing uh, and, and were good enough to play long enough to get bitten by the bug, but not quite good enough uh, to get paid for it uh, someday, but still wanted to be close to the game. And, and you got the chance to fulfill the end of that, going to the Orioles uh, during that uh, back in 90, no, 2008, um, and, uh, when, when just after I, I had gotten here. What was the biggest difference then leaving AAA and enjoying and understanding the experience and understanding that you have a good impact on the game at this level to feel yourself and to feel like you're making a difference, but then going to Baltimore uh, what was that first day like going to, to Camden Yards, uh, knowing that that was your job? What, what was your welcome to the big leagues moment? <laughs> it took about an hour for me to have my welcome to the big league moment. Uh, I actually joined the team at, in Chicago, uh, play the White Sox on a Friday. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking in. I, I think I know what I'm in for. I got a pretty good idea. Uh, it was great, actually, because Dave Tremblay, was a manager in Baltimore at the time, and he had managed for us at Iowa while I was there. Rick Kranitz was our pitching coach, and I had Cranny in Iowa. Alan Dunn was our bullpen coach, and he was our pitching coach at Iowa for a while. And then we had Scott Moore, I think Rocky Cherry, Luis Martinez, and uh, Felix Pia came in later. But So I walked in the clubhouse there, and I knew six people right when I walked in the door. And that's not always the case with, you know, people that go from the minor leagues to the, to the major leagues or whatever, but just having those six people and, and having the veteran guys see that the manager already knew me and trusted me and, and these other players, you know, just somebody giving you a bro hug when you walk into the clubhouse and they see you gives you instant credibility, I guess you could say. But, um, you know, my first day in Chicago, I'm, I'm standing there where clubhouse is open for an hour and a half before the game to media before batting practice rather. And, we're all just kind of standing around the reporters basically just stand around and wait for some kind of news to break. And then they go interview a bunch of people about it. Well, so just a normal boring day for that hour and a half, just sitting around and Amber Theo Harris was our, our sideline reporter for mass and our TV network. And she's a pretty good looking lady that, you know, did a really good job on TV and the players liked her and would talk to her regularly. And we had an outfielder, Jay Payton, who was sitting in his locker and Amber pulled up a chair next to him and they were talking about some stuff. And, and uh, you see this reporter guy kind of wandering over towards them, just kind of inching his way over, inching his way over and totally eavesdropping on their conversation. And Jay Payton gets up, he goes, Hey, you blankety blank, blank, blankety blank, blank. Stop eavesdropping on our conversation. You blankety blank, blank, blank get the blank out of here, you blanker. And I'm standing here just like, what the hell just happened? And everybody in the room is staring right at Jay Payton, staring right at this guy. And I'm just like, uh, I don't even know what to do right now. Like, we didn't have this happen in Des Moines. So <laughs> the guy just put his tail between his legs and walked right out of the clubhouse, and I never saw him again. And uh, I was like, damn. What the hell was that? But, you know, that was my welcome to the big league moment. Day one, I hadn't even been there for an hour yet. So that was, 
I didn't even have my credential yet. I didn't even have a badge yet. So <laughs> I almost got the referee WrestleMania in the clubhouse. So it was, that was crazy. But uh, I don't think we had another episode like that in my seven years in Baltimore. Thank God. That was a nightmare. You already mentioned a couple of managers that you worked with and, and working with a manager at the AAA level. Um, you know, the manager at the AAA level is getting told what to do by the front office quite a bit when it comes to lineups and roster moves, and there's not the same kind of control. You're there to manage the people and expectations and help them get their work in, uh, which is much different than being a manager at the major league level uh, and in terms of control and influence and all those kinds of things. And you got to work with maybe the guy who is most known for control and influence as a manager in and Buck Showalter, uh, and, and talking about being the CEO of everything, kind of, you know, Nick Saban gets that credit at Alabama. Showalter was like that at the professional level. I remember him getting credit for picking out the color of the uniforms when Arizona, when he was in Arizona as the uh, expansion team. What, what was Buck like in working with him for you? I tell you what, there's, I can't imagine anybody being more prepared or knowing more about what's going on around him than Buck. Um, I mean, it was everything. It wasn't just the other team's pitcher for that day. We would have 15 people walk around in the clubhouse before a game, most of them are media or whatever. And, and Buck would go stick his head in, look around and he, Jeff, come here, go into his office. He goes, who's the guy in a blue shirt? I had to walk back out there. I'm like, well, Buck, that's the barber. You know, they, he gives the guys a haircut on Sunday before road trips. All right. Couple minutes later, Jeff, come back in here. All right, Buck, what's up? Who's the guy in the in the gray sweater? Well, that's team. That's the baseball chapel guy, Buck. He's here every Sunday too. Yeah, I just he wanted to know who everybody in our clubhouse was at any given time. Um, you know, you talked about him picking the uniform colors in Arizona. Uh, there was a story. Uh, you know, when when we moved to Sarasota for spring training. Buck uh, didn't care for the color of the flowers that they had put in around the clubhouse. So next day there were some different flowers put in there. So uh, I remember him having bushes put up around the bullpen so that people couldn't see the bullpen sessions without a pass. So, um, very, very particular about how things were run. Um, but I tell you what, the day he walked in the door, that team had some credibility and, you know, he came in in uh, 2010, I believe it was 2010, and, and we had like, I want to say 30 wins or something like that, and it was August 5th or 4th or something like that, and we ended up winning more games in the last seven weeks of the season than we had in the previous four months without Buck, and, and it wasn't because the personnel was any better, it was the same guys, everybody just seemed to turn it up a notch, and and we really cleaned it up quick. And then uh, 2011, we had that crazy game 162 where uh, we beat Boston and then Longoria hit the home run to beat the Yankees and eliminated the Red Sox. And that game was a real big push forward for the Orioles organization. And the next year we ended up uh, going to the playoffs in 12 and lost the Yankees in the division series. But, um, you know, Buck, there's never been anybody more organized, more particular. Uh, I mean, he changed the logo to an angry looking bird from the cartoon bird. 
uh, it was, you know, Buck had his hands in a lot of things and, and winning was one of them, you know, and that's why everybody in that town loves him. Even if he did leave Zach Britton in, in uh, 15 or whatever year that was 16. Uh, but I mean, that guy completely changed that franchise for the better. Uh, and, and just the, the questions he would ask you, you know, did you see this or did you see that? And if you didn't see it, you started noticing things like that afterwards because you didn't want Buck to ask you if you saw anything that J.J. Hardy did tonight. Did you see Hardy tonight? What did he do? Well, he kind of tweaked his back, it looked like. That's right, he did. We're not going to talk <laughs> about that because nobody in the press box saw it, right? No, nobody saw it, Buck. It's fine. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, he, he was uh, – he's incredibly passionate about the game and, and – everything around it. His son is a scout, um, you know, just really good guy to work for, to learn from. Uh, his wife was great. Um, you know, he had us down to his house and we we're playing the Rangers down there in Dallas. He uh, had everybody over to the house one night for a uh, little party, a little cookout, Texas style barbecue thing. It was pretty awesome. So, it, uh, you know, you see these guys, you work with them over the course of the year, but you never know what their house is like or something like that. So you get down there and get a chance to see it. It was pretty impressive. Well, that's cool. Um, one of the challenges of doing this podcast is you get to talking and you look at the clock and a lot of time's gone by and you've only scratched the surface of all the things that you like to talk about uh, and topics that you want to get to. So um, the good thing is, is this doesn't ever have to stop. We'll get back around uh, to stuff. This has been a lot of fun. We've talked about other people. I wanted to finish up today's episode with you on a more personal note. Uh, you are one of the few uh, Iowa Cubs staff members who have worked a high school state tournament after having played in the high school state tournament. There's The, the list is growing a little bit, but you were one of the early ones, I think, to have, have had that experience. What do you remember about playing in the high school tournament at Principal Park and what that meant to you as high school Jeff Lance? Um, and then working it and being on the other side and, and how would you sum up that event from uh, all the different perspectives that you've had? Yeah. Uh, basically I was, I went to Iowa city high and in 1992, we ended up in the state championship against uh, Ben Sampson and Ankeny. Uh, they had two guys that ended up in the big leagues on their team that night, Ben Sampson and Todd Sears. Uh, and they, you know, we had 14 hits and they had four and Somehow they beat us nine eight. So uh, go figure. But we actually played that game. The state tournament then was in Marshalltown at the high school field there. And and I remember thinking to myself, man, this is you know you get all excited because you're going to state and and you get there and that that field has just been beaten to death. You know with Marshalltown Community College playing there and then Marshalltown High School and then the whole week of state tournament games and it's like man this you know it's a nice setting, but by the time you get through the whole state tournament the fields kind of tore up and, and so when uh i was years later obviously working in, in des moines with sam and and we'd been talking about the state tournament a few times over the years that i worked there and i said man you got to get the state tournament here this is the best playing field in the state of iowa it's the best ballpark in the state of iowa these kids that are playing for a state championship should be playing the best park on the best field and you know he, he reached out to uh the state the state association and they started negotiating and after a while they got it done and it came down here and 
and after I worked one, I was kind of like, man, maybe I should have kept my mouth shut. That's a lot of work. <laughs> but uh, I think it was like 28 games and something like that in seven days or whatever it was. And it's like, man, after the first year, because we all didn't know what to expect. So we were just on the clock all day. But now I think they they were they started rotating people in and out for days at a time after the first couple of years. We kind of figured out how to actually do this thing. And, you know, other than the, the groundskeeper wanting to kill you. You know, it, it was a pretty awesome week, and it's pretty neat to see those kids get a chance to play there. I mean, that look for, for high school kids playing on that field is like playing at Wrigley Field or Yankee Stadium compared to most of their fields that they're playing on. And just the grandstand, I mean, how cool is that? You know, it's I played at Burlington's Field when I was a, a uh, freshman in high school, and I felt like I was in the big leagues playing in the Class A stadium. I can't imagine what it's like for a kid from – Peak and Packwood to come and play at Principal Park. You know, that's that's uh, got to be quite an experience. Uh, it's always neat to see. You know, I, I watched City High was back there last year, and I, I got to watch the game online. And it's just it's awesome to see the way that that ballpark is dressed up for the tournament and just the, guy, the job you guys do putting that on is still great. What record did you have, and does it still stand? I know Sailor had you in the in the record books. What 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 record was that? Yeah, I had four. I had four hits that night against Ankeny, and. Uh, that tied the record for uh, the most hits in a state championship game. I'm pretty sure it still stands, but um, that was uh, that was a pretty fun night. Got a bunch of bunch of singles, but you know they all add up and they all count. They were all rockets. Uh, yeah, I, I can I, assure I, you that none of them were 64 hoppers through the infield. <laughs> they never are the next day. It's the yeah, just don't watch the video. Well, Jeff, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I anticipate we'll probably do this again uh, just because. Oh, this is a blast. I could, I could go for another 50 minutes if you got it. Well, well we, we always want to leave them wanting a little bit more. Uh, but this has been a, a lot of fun. Uh, we'll do this again. Uh, again, if you're uh, listening, this is Unwritten Rules, an Iowa Cubs podcast. I'm Randy Wayhofer, assistant general manager for the team. Uh, Jeff Lance has been our guest uh, currently with Major League Baseball and former media relations and communications director here with the Iowa Cubs, among all the other things that we touched on in his time with the Orioles. Every Tuesday, a new episode of the podcast drops. Check out all the information at iowacubs.com. Make sure that you like, subscribe, share, and all that good stuff that you do uh, with your podcast. So let everybody know about uh, how much fun we have talking baseball on this. Thanks again, Jeff, and uh, hope to see you back through the ballpark sometime this summer. My pleasure. Hope to, uh, hope to get back to Des Moines this summer and see some action there at Principal Park. We'll be here. And uh, we'll look to see you at the ballpark, too, to all of those of you listening. Thanks for uh, joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon.